This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. This morning we come to the fifth and final Sunday in our Reformation series. Some of you will be grateful um, to get it done. Others of you might be sad to see it go, Um, but this is where we are. This morning we'll be looking at um, the the sola, the alone statement that really um, holds all the rest of it together. It's, if you will, a, a net that fits around all of the other statements, and it is sola deo gloria, sola deo gloria, glory to God alone, glory to God alone. What came up out of the heart of the reformers as they were rediscovering through Scripture alone the apostolic gospel, the gospel given once and for all to the apostles in the New Testament was an understanding that if what they were, were reading is the truth about the gospel, then all glory for all that is done goes to God and God alone. Rome gets no glory. The Catholic Church gets no glory. The Pope gets no glory. The Reformers get no glory. Bishops get no glory. Pastors get no glory. Glory goes to God alone. Um, if got your Bibles with you. We're going to be anchored in Daniel chapter 4 today, but there's going to be a, a lot of Scripture, a lot of Scripture. So don't feel bad about choosing to simply listen. I think sometimes we've forgotten in our age that belief comes by hearing, that the gospel is primarily and will remain primarily an auditory message. So you can trust that. If you, if you want to find all the verses yourself, they're all in the app on the notes section for today's message. Or you can flip around as you want. Most of them will be on the screen. Some of them will not. Uh, but most of them will be on the screen uh, this morning. One of, well, let me see. This is just an interesting thing for me. How many of you are on Instagram? Okay. How many of you are on Facebook? I picked up a few more. Okay. All right, well, one of, the, uh, one of the people I follow on Instagram is named Sydney uh, McLaughlin. Sydney is a young woman, 23 now. She's one of our Olympians. Uh, she was a high school and uh, college track star, ran for the University of Kentucky, competed as uh, the youngest uh, Olympian in track and field in 2016 at Rio at the age of 16. It had been 46 years uh, since we'd had anyone her age compete uh, in track. And, and I watched her run in 2020 um, just after we had moved here in the Olympics in Tokyo. She's a two-time um, gold medalist um, and an impressive young woman, a follower of Christ. And as I was uh, looking at a post that she uh, did yesterday or the day before, I noticed some phrases that she'd underlined uh, in a book. And this is what she'd underlined in the book. Justification is by grace alone, not mixed with our merit. Through faith alone, not mixed with our works. On the basis of Christ alone, 
not mingling his righteousness with ours, to the glory of God alone, not ours. And in her comments, she began by making an observation that truth in our day has become subjective, and sin has begun being justified and celebrated. Justified and celebrated. She's exactly right. And part of what she does in the post is, is in a sense, kind of anchor the solution there back into the Reformation and through the Reformation and Scripture alone into the gospel itself. The gospel itself. When we look at Sola Dea Gloria, there's something in the human constitution that pushes back against some of the truth that we find in Scripture about the glory of God and God's passion for His own glory. There's something in the broken, sinful makeup of human beings that resists that. You'll find yourself resisting a bit this morning. Because in our hearts and in our souls, we want to be glorified. We feel like that even God doesn't have the right to do anything without human consent and permission. Unless it runs along with our desires and our will, God himself, how dare he act? How dare he act? I hope by the end of this morning, God's glory and God's passion for his own glory is a sweet and beautiful thing to you that warms your heart and your mind, that stirs your affection and your intellect. Yesterday, I was home with the boys and... Uh, they're four, year old, four years old, our twins are, and we were watching Alvin and the Chipmunks. Not the little cartoon that some of you might think of, but some movie that was made some time ago where the Chipmunks aren't real, that sing in English, uh, but human actors are in there. So we're watching, and Zane decides to assign um, Chipmunk identities to us. And he said, I'm Alvin. Who wants to be Simon and Theodore? So Zeke and I split up Simon and Theodore, and Zane said, I'm Alvin, I'm the awesomest. And I thought, God, it starts early. It starts early. All Zane was communicating out of his own sin was his desire to be the greatest among the three of us in there. Now, clearly, I was the greatest among the three of us in there. I don't need help to go to the restroom. I may again one day. I freely admit that. But at this point, I do not. But it starts very early. Kids just don't have the filter. They don't have the mask we have yet. So they're just willing to say, I want to be the greatest, and I prefer to be acknowledged as such. Let's look at a, a, an account in redemptive history and just in history, in the history of Macedonia, the great uh, Babylonian Empire, modern-day Iraq, some of you will be familiar with this, some of you uh, will not be, but Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon in this day, had had a dream that disturbed him, and he wanted to know what it meant. So he calls his boys in, and they can't answer, so he brings in Daniel who was a servant of the Most High God. And God had given Daniel an ability to accurately, faithfully interpret dreams. 
Wouldn't you like sometimes to sit down with Daniel and say, have I got one for you? Last night, I was flying in a peach orchard, and on you go, and Daniel can tell you what it means. This is where Nebuchadnezzar is. Now, I'm not going to read all of it because obviously it would take a while, but we're going to pick up with verse 28 of Daniel chapter 4. This is following Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he says this is what's going to happen. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? Let me point something out. Nebuchadnezzar never built anything in his life himself. Kings don't build things. Kings have slaves and subjects who build things. But this is how Nebuchadnezzar saw the world before him. It was his world, and he was the center of it. You and I may not be kings, but we kid ourselves if we do not believe that our sin whispers to us constantly that the most joyful and fulfilling way for us to live is for us to be the center of our universe, for everything else to orbit around us and every one to orbit around us. At the, at the very root of most of our anger and our frustration, and words we, we shouldn't say and emotions we shouldn't give voice to is the idea that I should have it easier and better and more than everyone else. And when it doesn't go that way, whether it's in my home with my kids or going through a drive through line where they give me the wrong thing, whatever it is, what comes out of me is the reaction of someone who in my soul is still wrestling with God's spirit over this issue of whether or not I can be the center around which everything in my life orbits. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth. I love that statement. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. Now, you and I, if we believe this, we're going to struggle with this because we're going to say, what about this ruler? What about this president? What about this nation over here? But Scripture again and again affirms this. That God is the most high ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. He gives them blessing and influence and affluence. He brings them down and destroys them. At that moment, at that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Who, who can stop God? Who can say to God, still your voice, back up your will? At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. When Sharon and I were newly married, 
two or three years in, I was raised in a country family, ranching family. There are things you do in the country. There are things you do in a family of all boys that I guess could be considered uncouth or uncultured, even though my mama tried. And Sharon came home one day and found me sitting at our table. She's covering her face already. Cleaning my toenails out with a fork, (laughs) which I thought was quite industrious. Didn't cut me, did the job, could go in the dishwasher. She had a very narrow mindset about that. I've never done it since Um, because she literally changed colors and forms into something I'd never seen before. I don't know that I had eagle's feathers and nails like bird's claws, but I do know I was cleaning them with the wrong utensil. That was all for free. Verse 34. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. The most profound thing that some of you could do this morning in an issue of struggle, in an issue of fear, in an issue of uncertainty, is simply look up. Stop looking at it. Even if you're praying for it, stop looking at it and look up to heaven. Put your eyes on Jesus. He looked up to heaven and his sanity returned. I'm not going to touch that one too heavily, but some of you this morning might look up to heaven and pray that your sanity would be returned to you. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. So, so Nebuchadnezzar stops looking at himself and his kingdom. He looks up to heaven. God restores his sanity. In other words, God makes right and straight his crooked thinking. God makes right and straight his crooked thinking. And then with his thinking made right, the response then that flows from his life is praise to the Most High and honor and glory. I praise the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And He does what He wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block His hand or say to Him, what? Have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. For the glory of the kingdom that God, in his providence, at that time had entrusted to Nebuchadnezzar. The glory returned to the kingdom, for the kingdom, not to Nebuchadnezzar himself. My advisor and my noble sought me out, and I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those 
who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. As I said, you and I may not be kings or queens this morning over kingdoms, but God has given us a life. God has given us influence. He's given us a sphere in which we live and breathe and operate. And I want to challenge you this morning to put all that before God and commit to God to live for His glory and His glory alone. Again, remember in the Reformation, it was the word alone that caused the Reformers so much trouble. People they were talking to didn't mind giving God glory as long as they got a little as well. The Reformers said no. Glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. We, this, this tendency is wide in our day and our culture to exalt ourselves as Nebuchadnezzar does. There's a radio host who has chosen to go by the name Charlemagne the God. Charlemagne the God. Tells you a little bit of uh, the esteem with which he holds himself. Charlemagne the God, his real name is Leonard McKelvey. I guess that didn't sound as good. Hey, Leonard, as Charlemagne the God. Charlemagne the God. This is in our DNA as human beings. Howard Hughes uh, died in 1976, but sort of uh, made popular again or infamous again to a new generation by Leonardo, not Leonardo da Vinci, Leo, whoever the actor guy is. DiCaprio, yep, he doesn't matter that much. Yeah, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Aviator. But Howard Hughes was, was one of the wealthiest human beings on the planet in the early to mid-20th century. And he inherited that, but he uh, was a businessman and a philanthropist and a filmmaker and an aviator. But he, uh, his own vanity and hunger for glory and esteem literally drove him mad drove him mad. One of the most eccentric, sad lives of a century that saw two world wars was Howard Hughes. So what, what is this issue of, of God's glory and the glory of God? What I, what I want us to do as we see Nebuchadnezzar brought low and when he comes back out of his season of self-glorification and his crooked thinking is made straight, what flows from his life is praise and glory to God I want us to just do a bit of a survey on this issue of glory in Scripture. Glory of God in Scripture. And I, I want to throw out uh, just four observations that you can find. Uh, a verse or two, we'll kind of see how the time does uh, for each one. Like I said, these are in the sermon notes on the app. Um, but you can uh, dig in further. And my hope is that you will, that you will dig into this issue of God's own glory further. First observation is this, um, that glory is consistently associated with God's name throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Glory, glory is consistently associated with God's name. If you look at Psalm 29.3, you read this, the voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord above the vast water 
The next time there's a storm, you can tell yourself, Psalm 29.3 says, the God of glory is thundering. The God of glory. Glory is attached so closely to God's name. Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen in this chapter. Verses 2 and 3 say this, Brothers and fathers, he replied, Listen, the God of glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. In Stephen's mind, the God he's about to give his life for is most accurately described as Stephen is facing his accusers who will soon become his executioners. The characteristic most associated with God is glory. His glory, the God of glory, appeared to our fathers. When you think about God, what is the attribute or the characteristic that most closely associates itself to God? I think for many of us, it would not be glory. It would not be glory. And, and when I say glory, I mean uh, the kind of being that draws our affection, our wonder, our focus, our delight, our enjoyment and joy toward Him because we see Him for who He really is. Glory is consistently associated with God's name. God's glory, God's glory also throughout Scripture, speaks of His honor and reputation. Speaks of His honor and reputation. Psalm 79.9, Psalm 79.9 says, God of our salvation... Help us for the glory of your name. Have you ever cried out to God and said, God, help me in this situation. Help me for the glory of your name. Help me so that you will be honored, so that you will be glorified. Help me because of who you are. God of our salvation, help us for the glory of your name. Rescue us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. For your name's sake. Here the psalmist doesn't plead God's grace. He doesn't plead God's mercy. He doesn't plead God's love. He pleads God's glory. He pleads God's concern, if you will, for his own honor and his own reputation that is most at stake in the world by how he relates to you, his children. How he relates to you, his children. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. We, we saw that in Nebuchadnezzar's case, didn't we? Or my praise to idols. You know, in, in our day of, uh, it, it's certainly waning, Christendom and sort of the, 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 the Christian culture nature has gone everywhere and it's in its death throes in the United States. But when we live in a world of social media and, and access where, um, where people who, who claim to proclaim the gospel so easily turn into stars, you should be very, very weary when you see men or women accepting praise and glory that you know in your soul is due only to God. 
there's a serious problem there. God's glory speaks of His honor or reputation. Some of you will remember, some of you were barely born and some of you weren't born. In 1998, 1998, when the movie Titanic came out, and it swept the Academy Awards that year. It was nominated for 14 Oscars. It won 13 of them, including Best Picture. Some of you were watching that now, like nobody cares anymore about the Oscars. Uh, now that we have Instagram and these other things, the stars are everywhere, we're like, we're so sick of seeing you and hearing from you. Um, so no, nobody watches much anymore, but some of you were watching that night, and you remember Steven Spielberg as he went up to uh, receive the Oscar for uh, Best Picture after having gone up again and again and again uh, with his troop to receive Oscars. He, he threw his arms up in the air with the Oscar in one hand and said, I'm the king of the world. Any of you remember that? He's not the king of the world. He's not the king of the world. He wasn't that night. He's not tonight. He's a human being who, apart from Christ, stands guilty before God, storing up for himself the same wrath that all of us store up outside of Christ. But there's something in us, isn't there? I mean, who would deny that? That there's not something in us that wants to stand on a stage to the adulation of everyone in the room and everyone watching and be able to say without anyone disagreeing, I am the king of the world that lives in us. That's what Adam and Eve said when they said, we'll just take this and eat. Surely he wasn't serious. Surely he didn't mean what he said. Third observation, God's glory is revealed in creation. God's glory is revealed in creation. For the sake of time, I'll just read one here. We'll go back to Psalm again, to the Psalms, to the uh, very uh, popular and well-known beginning verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Some of you know this and you think about this. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. When you look up at sunrise, some of you are like, people are awake at sunrise? When, you, when you're driving home and the sun is setting and God is showing off the vast array of the skies, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech Night after night, they communicate knowledge. Have you ever thought about that? That in the colors of the sky, in the beauty of a clear blue sky day, in the stillness of a night with the, the brilliance of the stars, that the heavens are pouring out speech to his creation, that the heavens are declaring God's glory, that they are communicating knowledge attributes and characteristics, the truth of God pouring forth from His very creation. Jesus says when the Pharisees want to quiet the, the praise of His disciples in Luke 19, He says, so what? If they remain quiet, the stones themselves will cry out in worship to God. God will be worshiped. He will be glorified because he's worthy of it. See, God would be a narcissistic zero if he commanded glory for himself 
but wasn't the most glorious thing in all creation. But he is. And so he would lack integrity and character if he wasn't about his own glory. And sharing that in a life-giving way with his creation that images it back to him in praise and worship and holy living. Fourth and final observation from Scripture on the connection between God and glory is that God is glorified through both judgment and redemption. This is a bit hard for us, but I'm going to give you some examples and then you can dig in and go uh, further on your own if you want. We don't struggle to believe that God is glorified through redemption, but we struggle to believe that God is glorified in his judgment. Now, we don't mind God being glorified in his judgment on ISIS, right? We mind him being glorified in his judgment on our unbelieving aunt, who was really kind and gracious all the years that we knew her, who played with us when we were at her house and cooked the best meals, who gave blood regularly and supported goodwill and the Salvation Army, and just never had a need for, for Jesus, never went to church was concerned, unconcerned with spiritual things and died without her life ever reflecting anything that the New Testament says the life of a believer should reflect. Let's look at this. Let's, let's, uh, let's do Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, 22, God is pronouncing judgment, the coming judgment on Sidon. He does the same thing a few chapters later on Gog. Ezekiel 28, 20, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, face Sidon and prophesy against it. You are to say, this is what the Lord God says, look, I am against you, Sidon, and I will display my glory within you. They will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments against her and demonstrate my holiness through her. I will send a plague against her and bloodshed in her streets. The slain will fall within her while the sword is against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God says the judgment I'm preparing to bring on Sidon will result in my glory. A few chapters later, he says, the judgment I'm preparing to bring on Gog will result in my glory. He says to Pharaoh as he's preparing to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt and judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And you find this dance between Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That God's going to judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians and bring glory to himself. That they will know that he is the Lord. He is the Lord. God is glorified in his judgments because they are right and true and perfect. It's not, us, it's not up to us to decide who's a recipient of God's judgment and who is a recipient of God's grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Not only does God receive glory in judgment, but obviously God receives glory, or should, in redemption. In Him, in Him, that is Christ, 
we have also received an inheritance because we, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purposes of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And this will often bring up in, in thoughtful listeners this question, well, is it out of esteem for his glory or love for people that God saves? Is it out of esteem for his glory or love for people that God saves? The Bible says, yes, yes. It is not one or the other. It is both throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments. We can't cover all the verses, but let me, uh, let me show you one where you find both together. Psalm 109, 21. Psalm 109, 21. But you, Lord, my Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake. Deal kindly with me for your name's sake. There is no more kind dealing of God toward us than our salvation, than our rescue from sin and judgment, which is for his name's sake. Because your faithful love is good, rescue me. Do you see them both there? Show me kindness, God, not what I deserve, but show me kindness. Deal with me kindly for your name's sake, for your reputation and your honor. Because your faithful love is good, rescue me. It's parallelism. It's two ways of saying one thing. Save me, God. Redeem me. Secure me for your name's sake. And because your faithful love is good, because your faithful love is good. If you look back a couple of chapters, 106, 8, you'll see an emphasis on God's glory in his name. 106, verse 8, yet he saved them. This is the psalmist looking back on God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And you know that, you know the Exodus um, as God's prototype for the salvation we have in Christ that we find in the New Testament. Yet he saved them for his namesake, to make his power known, to make his power known. Psalm 25. I'll show you one more here. Psalm 25:11. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. For the sake of your name, God, forgive. Why, why is the psalmist saying this? Because it is characteristic of God to forgive. For God to forgive when his people cry out in confession and ask for it. So it would be contrary to his own nature and defame his own name, which God will not do. And the psalmist knows this. This is why God's esteem for his own glory and the reputation of his name is good news to the psalmist. 
It provides assurance for prayer. That among other reasons, God will answer the prayers of his people and will continue his work in his people for the sake of his own glory and the honor of his own name. Now, in Psalms, we also see this issue of God acting out of love. Psalm 6, 4. Psalm chapter 6, verse 4. Turn, Lord, rescue me. Save me because of your faithful love. Because of your faithful love. You see this again in Psalm 69. Psalm 69, 16. Answer me, Lord, for your faithful love is good. In keeping with your abundant compassion, turn to me. So does God save? Does he deal with his people on the basis of his esteem for his own glory or his love for his people? Yes. Now we don't struggle at all to believe that God deals with us out of his love for us, but we do struggle to believe. How could he? How could he? And, and I just, I submit to you this morning that the root of that is in our own sinful, fractured nature that is suspicious of a God who has esteem for his own glory and honor and acts out of it. But church, if God is who Scripture reveals him to be, how could he not? How could he not? It would be inconsistent. He would be untrustworthy. And we know this if we just think about it. That great psalm that's been so loved, Psalm 23, verse 3, says he renews my life. He leads me along right paths. For what? For his namesake. For his namesake. And then John 3, 16, we find that it was for love. God's love of his world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would cry out and throw themselves on Jesus would be saved and not perish. Sola Dea Gloria, the reformers would say. And the clearest and fullest expression of God's glory is seen in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, the glory of God is so synonymous with, uh, with God's um, incarnation in the Son of God that John closely relates throughout his gospel Jesus' glory and glorification with the cross, with Jesus' obedience and suffering to the point of death on a cross. Could you ever, did you ever think that maybe what God's doing in some of your suffering is glorifying you? Is giving you an opportunity to walk through suffering through the power of the Holy Spirit with the obedience that Jesus did? Thus, giving glory to God as a world watches you. Being an accurate mirror and reflection of God's own glory. And walking into what will be one day the brilliance of your own glorification. As through your resurrection, you spend eternity in God's great new kingdom. Look at Hebrews 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1, 3. The sun is the radiance, the radiance of God's glory. You, you want to know what God's glory is like? Look at Jesus. And the exact expression of his nature. 
sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's not just the writer of Philemon or the writer of Hebrews. It's also how the apostle Paul understood Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6 says, We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. Your life will come into alignment in ways that you have never known. When you can, from the heart, say, Sola Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. When things are high, when things are low, when my relationships are good, when they're bad, when the bank account is full, when the bank account is empty, when I'm healthy, when I'm sick, whatever my circumstances, glory to God alone. I will walk through them in a way that testifies to those who are watching me that I live for something other than my own comfort and exaltation. Sydney McLaughlin, in her Instagram post, where she underlined the different solo statements from the book she was reading, went on to say this, this challenge to her peers as a 23-year-old young woman. Be a person of integrity. Stand firm on the Word of God. Stand ten toes down on the gospel. I'd like a shirt that says that. Stand ten toes down on the gospel. Regardless of the response, repercussions, or retaliation. And she's saying this, remember, in uh, the context of an admitted culture that is telling us every single day and is winning this with our children, that truth is subjective. It is whatever you want it to be. And, and you define it yourself, and then you, you are right, good, and just to require that others celebrate it. Whatever you decide is truth. The promise of eternity, Sidney writes, with Jesus is far greater than the temporary suffering we may face on earth. Some of you will hear scripture in the background of her statement there. He is worth it. His peace is beautiful. His mercy unending. His character faithful. His integrity impeccable. Don't miss it. Focusing on the temporal right before our eyes. Eternity is too long to regret temporary pleasures. Especially when we have such a perfect God. I just want to leave you with this challenge. Confessing with clarity, conviction, and courage. Scripture alone. Faith alone. Grace alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone does not lead to some kind of a warped, cold, darkened faith. It leads to the, the warmth of the words that we just read from an everyday young woman 
who's seeking to have her life centered on the gospel given once for all, recorded in the New Testament. And diving into the great truths of the Reformation has led her to write things like his peace is beautiful, his mercy unending, his character faithful, his integrity impeccable. We have such a perfect God. Will you stand this morning? Wherever you are, whatever season of life you're in, whatever you're uneasy about, whatever you're waiting on God to do or to answer, wherever you're experiencing fear, wherever your heart is broken, wherever there's uncertainty and anxiety, will you along with Nebuchadnezzar lift your eyes to heaven now? Put your eyes on Jesus who is glorious, who is faithful to His people, who has given us truth in written form so that as human beings who understand things through human communication and language can have truth that isn't subjective so we don't have to be blown all around. Will you look to heaven this morning? Will you say with the fullness of your heart, glory to God alone in all things, in all ways, at all times? Or will you at least confess, God, I know that that's not the true desire of my heart, but I want it to be. I want to be about your glory. Will you make it so in my life? Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.